Good afternoon and welcome to Lethal Exports. Joining me today are Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolin, Vancouver Police Deputy Chief Fiona Wilson, RCMP Chief Superintendent for BC David Teleb, Delta Chief of Police Neil Dubord, and Calvin Krusty, a consultant experienced in transnational investigations, intelligence, and terrorist operations. Before we start, I want to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the traditional territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam First Nations, whose people have lived on and continue to call these lands home, OCM. Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolin has published an extensive series titled Lethal Exports. Exports. Bolin accompanied Australian border officials searching for drugs and interviewed many law enforcement and government officials in different countries. Her investigation found Canadians at the top of transnational smuggling chains basing themselves overseas in places like Vietnam and Taiwan to avoid arrest back here. And their illicit enterprises are having a devastating impact in poor South Pacific countries such as Fiji. Now, just before we dig in, I know there are many viewers wanting to ask questions of Kim and our panelists. To do so, please go to slido.com and enter the password conversations. Our Slido master, Sean Hall, will receive your questions and he'll post them. And I'll also call on him to share one or two of the questions uh, verbally with the panelists. Now, while we may not get to all of your specific questions, they will guide me as the conversation unfolds. Kim? First of all, thank you for your stories. They are the type of journalism that we desperately need. They fill an information gap. They're complex and demand time and space to report on appropriately. And I'd also like to acknowledge the role the Lieutenant Governor's BC Journalism Fellowship Award played to be able to help make these stories possible. So Kim, let's not wait any longer. What prompted you to dig into this very important uh, series of stories? Well, I'm a crime reporter here in Vancouver and have been for a long time. And I think as you cover things that are right there in front of you, like we all do as journalists on the ground here, you're constantly seeing links to things beyond your physical location that you want to pursue, you want to get more information. So, you know, because I was able to apply for this fellowship and it could finance uh, travel to six different countries, I was able to kind of follow those threads and try and get to the other end of them and see what role uh, Canadians are playing in the international smuggling chain and uh, what role some of these major criminals are playing in terms of the operations that they're involved in overseas. What's the thing that surprised you the most? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it's just really a wonderful opportunity to be able to sort of take the knowledge you have from here on the ground and see, you know, what's going on further down the road, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't always get that opportunity as journalists. And all the journalists I know who are beat reporters in this city would like to dig deeper, would like to go further, would like to spend more time. But, you know, because of resources, we don't always have that opportunity. So I think for me, one of the things that was the most surprising was how, at the highest level, all these organizations are working together, even when on the ground here, all the little low-level, mid-level people who are repping their, their gang, their team, are shooting at each other, you know, causing a lot of problems here. I'm sure that's not 
you know, something new for, you know, police officers who maybe understand that scope. But it was eye-opening to me, and it was a message I really wanted to bring back to my readers and also to some of the younger guys that are directly involved in this. At the highest level, they are not going after each other, and they're making money, and they're using you here on the ground. So that was something that was um, important for me to bring back and to write about. And I would say the other key point was just, you know, how senior some of the Canadians overseas are in terms of these transnational organized crime groups. You know, a fellow like Cam Wong, who grew up in Abbotsford, is right there, you know, near the top uh, with uh, Sam Gorehead, Say Chai Lop. So that was really interesting. And even someone like James Riak, who's been in prison for 10 years in the Philippines, again, a lower mainland guy. I remember going to Vancouver Police News conferences about James Riak back in 2008, 2009. He's in prison for life and still working in the transnational drug trade, right? So that was eye-opening. Kelvin, any of this come as a surprise to you? First of all, a compliment, Kim, in terms of uh, the effort uh, to go out there, because the story is like not only from a, a safety perspective and a security perspective, and I have a lot of respect for Kim relative to taking these chances, because I think the threats and the networks that she's uh, reporting on uh, are, you know, beyond just a public safety uh, threat amongst each other. But I think they pose a threat to all Canadians in a host of ways. Two, am I surprised? Sadly, uh, not at all. Uh, we saw some huge changes around 2007 and 2008, and I think you know she uh, alluded to a, a time frame there that I think is really important for everybody to reflect on, <clears throat> where people like React and other people stepped up, and we saw basically the infrastructure of organized crime here all of a sudden get toppled, and I think <clears throat> I don't think we've paid enough attention in terms of what that meant, uh, and when we put it in a global context and apply geopolitics on it, look at the networks internationally. I think uh, something happened in terms of Vancouver uh, then at that particular time. And um, I think Kim's story has uh, illuminated uh, some of it. I think it's much bigger than, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, beyond the Australia issue, I think it touches Africa, it touches uh, Europe, it touches everywhere on the planet. And Vancouver has basically become a convergence zone uh, for it not due to, to, which I'll say, because I'm sitting next to Vancouver City Policing, nothing to do with policing, I don't think, a lot more complex issues. So, Dave, from your perspective, what happened so that where Vancouver did become this convergence zone? Because I think that's one of the other really interesting elements out of Kim's series, that you go, holy smokes, we seem to be this transit point for international gangs from around the world coming here and then shipping back out to other locations. Yeah, and first of all, I think uh, Kim was right in her point that I think organized crime has understood years ago, stemming back to around the 2007, 2008 and following years, stemming from, of course, the Surrey 6 enforcement that was done and a lot of subsequent uh, violent crimes that were solved by law enforcement, both by the RCMP and Vancouver Police and Partners. But uh, Kim was right in the sense that um, the high-level organized crime has understood that it's not go- violence is not good for business, all right? and that there needed to be collaboration at the highest level if they're going to make the money, the kind of money that they're aiming to make uh, in Canada and worldwide. So I think she's 100% right when she says uh, at the highest levels, um, what appears to be conflicts uh, at a lower level, on a, at the street level, and, and, and gangs and guns and violence and murders, at a higher level, 
there's collaboration. Uh, I think she's, she's completely right. Yeah. Uh, to your question, though, about Vancouver or BC t turning into uh, a hub for, uh, for, uh, for organized crime, as, uh, as uh, Kim has uncovered and, and as uh, law enforcement uh, knows very well, it's tied to profits. Uh, British Columbia has, has, has uh, certainly been fortuitous for organized crime, uh, and, and it's due to the importation of commodities and chemicals and precursors, fabrication, exportation, and there's a lot of money behind that, as we, as we know. So we can take a look at this, especially in looking at your reports, Kim, and go, okay, uh, an awful lot of what you're talking about is, uh, you know, illicit transit uh, uh, trade that's coming through Vancouver, but is it affecting Vancouver? Uh, because, you know, when we think about local policing and generally when we cover it, it's, well, what's happening on the street? Fiona, is, are we a little naive to not recognize that uh, this transnational crime also feeds uh, local crime networks? Well, I certainly think we see that every day. We see that on the streets of Vancouver. We see that in our overdose deaths um, that unfortunately continue to rise every year. Um, and uh, I, I certainly know that we have watched the, um, uh, the climbing of individuals in Vancouver through organized crime and through uh, the drug trade. You know, I, I remember arresting people like Damien Ryan, who's recently been uh, featured in the news um, when he was just a kid doing relatively, you know, low-level um, dial-a-dope type uh, operations. And I think Kim's point about violence um, at the street level is a really, really important message because... I think for many years we've known that at the higher levels there must be a lot of cooperation, but for that to be confirmed and translated in, with respect to what we're seeing at street level in terms of gun violence um, in particular, I think it's a really important message for, for the people who are on the ground. But you know, to think that we are not um, seeing the impact of uh, transnational organized crime on the streets of Vancouver, I absolutely naive because we do. So what is it that you can do, though, as a police department to, because you're Vancouver City, uh, but you're now, uh, like, experiencing the consequences of this transnational crime that's coming through British Columbia. What can you do as a city to say, okay, well, we're going to interfere with that. We're actually going to be able to help stop that. Or is that asking too much of the city police department? Does it need a different coordinated uh, effort? So I think one of the biggest things we do uh, is work with our partners throughout the country. Um, we have, at the VPD, we have over 100 officers who are seconded to different units, including the Federal Series Organized Crime Unit, where Cal and I actually worked together a number of years ago um, to inset, uh, for example. So we have uh, a number of different secondments. So really, the key to targeting those higher-level organizations is coordination across the country by police, for sure. Uh, joining us remotely is Neil DeBoer from uh, the Delta Police. Neil, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us and, and, and dialing in remotely. When you've heard what you've heard so far, uh, and you take a look at the situation that you deal with in Delta, which is a major port, especially all of those containers that pass through the Delta port, how is that impacting your community and your department? Well, I can begin by saying that, you know, Delta Port itself sits on 300 acres within the city of Delta. 
and it's only 30 kilometers from downtown Vancouver. So we know that Highway 91, 99, 17 all connect uh, the Delta Port to the Lower Mainland and to the U.S. border as well. And we also know that it's the gateway to the Pacific with only being three day of sailing time between here and Asia. So it's, it's very strategic in relation to its location. It came to our attention that certainly from uh, the city policing side that we needed to work closer with our partners, needed to work closer with the federal partners, especially to be able to look at uh, the type of contraband that was moving in and out of the Delta port and moving into our city and, and through our city to other parts of the lower mainland. And that's sort of where the interest came. And Kim's article uh, in investigation came at a, a fortuitous time for us to be able to really seize upon uh, sort of the awareness uh, of how much contraband is both imported and exported from the Delta port. You uh, uh, helped uh, in the development of the report that talked about uh, policing in ports in Canada. Um, so the timing of, of this is, is like uh, fortunate because it helps to bring uh, attention to it. What were the main recommendations from that finding? Absolutely. But a little bit of background first, Stuart, that might be helpful. In March 2018, Deputy Chief Lawrence Rankin from the Vancouver Police Department actually worked with the uh, Transportation, Transportation uh, Canadian Modernization Review Panel as part of the CACP, which is the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and put together some recommendations. And the recommendations at that time were, were threefold. The first one was lack of police presence. The second one was security concerns with port employees. And the third one was some form of proactive policing. So jump forward now to our report, which came out just in late 2023. Peter German and, and retired Deputy Chief uh, Doug Lepard put that report together. And they indicated uh, really four recommendations. The, the first recommendation was since 2001, there's actually been 10 documented reviews of port security, all making recommendations, many of them which have never been actioned. The second one is that there should be some form of uniform presence at the port. The third one was increased coordination of investigated teams and task force. And that's exactly what uh, Deputy Chief Wilson is speaking about, about the coordination of how we work together. And when we toured the port of Seattle, we, we saw a, a very a port that cooperated with the FBI, the DEA, the port uh, security and police, the local police department, it all worked together in a coordinated fashion. And finally, the credentialing of employees entering a secured area. Those were the four major recommendations from the Peter German Douglas Park report that we helped put together here in the city of Delta. Well, let's come back to some of that a little bit later because Kim, I wanna go to a point like when I first had conversations um, with you and with Harold about this, I was stunned to learn about the ingenuity that these transnational uh, criminal organizations are using, that they would be actually welding sea chests onto the bottom of ships and so on. You went down to Melbourne and mm -hmm. met with officials there. Uh, we have a little bit of tape. Maybe you can explain what we're looking at when uh, when we see this. Smyre, can you roll that tape? There we go. So this is uh, footage that you took, I believe. Yeah. So, so what are we seeing here, Kim? We're seeing a member, an officer with the Australian Border Force putting in the submersible. Uh, it will go up to the container ship, which is at, at dock there in Melbourne, and it goes under. We're now seeing the computer screen. It gets close with, within about a meter of the ship. You're able to see inside these grates that are called sea chests and organized crime, particularly um, South American cartels are putting cocaine and other drugs inside those sea chests, like hundreds of 
kilograms of drugs. And, you know, the, the people aboard the ship don't even know. They're not even involved, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, it's almost like, you know, who do you arrest, right? When, if you, so the month before I did this uh, little trip, uh, they found 150 kilos of cocaine right in the same port with the same device. A few months before that, they found 200, right? So then they have to send their divers down um, and, you know, retrieve this, which is very dangerous. One of the things they explained to me is that, you know, because organized crime is doing that, uh, there won't even be buyers for that amount of cocaine until it arrives in Australia. Then they kind of put it out to tender and, you know, get. So, so if it's seized, right, you know, again, there's no one picking it up on the other end, right? So it's very difficult in cases like that to get charges laid. Uh, they also have had circumstances where, um, divers have been flown in from other countries by the transnational crime groups to dive down and get the drugs. And uh, a year and a half ago, someone died doing that. It's a very dangerous um, process, obviously, when you're close to ships and there are motors and engines and everything. So, yeah, they will use every method they can. One of the things that Vancouver is kind of knowing for is shotgunning, right, where they are sending by mail like a kilogram of methamphetamine, or some other product, you know, but you send a hundred of those packages, you get a lot of drugs into a country in a relatively safe way, right, in terms of someone being held accountable at this end. I'm surprised to see in your reports how uh, uh, prevalent drug use is in Australia, making it such a perfect market. Yeah, it is, but it's, you know, they're very grateful that they don't have the fentanyl problem yet. They're hoping they don't get the fentanyl problem, but uh, they are... Uh, the highest user of methamphetamine uh, in the world. Per some capita, of it, right? Per capita, yeah. yeah. Some of it is used, you know, in social settings, but there is there is a real street drug problem and issue there with a lot of related, you know, social harms like domestic violence issues and, uh, you know, some of similar things that to what we have here. But again, without the fentanyl, you don't see what you see in our communities, fortunately mm-hmm. for them. The Waterfront Task Force um, falls under your jurisdiction, doesn't it? Um, what ha- do you have in the way of resources, and what can be done to help bolster uh, those uh, you know, limited resources, as I understand, that you have? Yeah, just for clarity, I'm in charge of the federal policing uh, branch in, in uh, BC or CMP, so I overlook six different programs, uh, national security, drugs, or, or drugs, organized crime, and border integrity are three of the six programs, uh, and the waterfront joint force operation falls under border integrity. If you allow me just to step, uh, to make one step back that kind of speaks to the importance of what we're talking about. Over the last couple of years, we've had, We've all seen a lot of talks about emerging national security threats across the country and internationally. It's been talked about by a prime minister, a lot of it uh, around foreign interference. At the same time, we've had a lot of conversations about um, the the pervasive effects of high-end organized criminality across the country and particularly in B.C. We've learned a lot of things from the Cullen Commission. Um, Fiona made references to the high death toll, I think 2,500 deaths uh, this past year alone uh, in B.C., um, we cannot have a serious conversation about these two big topics, who incidentally are my priority, the RCMP's priority federal, uh, in the federal program and, and nationally. We can't have a serious conversation about these two priorities without talking about the integrity of our borders, and particularly in BC, a province that shares the longest land border with three U.S. states and 26,000 kilometers of coastline 
uh, and that includes also our uh, our, our ports mm-hmm. uh, in Delta and Surrey and Vancouver and Prince Rupert uh, and so on. So uh, within the Border Integrity Program, to answer your question, um, we have a waterfront GFO uh, structure. It is, in my view, the best operational structure that we law enforcement uh, have at our disposal. But like any other structure, any other capacity, it needs to be nourished. It needs to be fed with resources, money, people, and so on. Otherwise, you can have the best solution possible. If you don't nourish it, if you don't feed it, you won't have a capacity. So you need, you need resources. Yes, I do. Yeah, you need more personnel more and personnel, more money. More personnel, more money. Um, we have in law enforcement, and Fiona can attest to it, we have very good relationships in BC within the police agencies. Um, I would venture to say maybe even some of the best relationships across Canada within the agencies. Um, but all of our agencies are uh, challenged uh, to different extent with resources and budgets and these sort of things. Uh, so there needs to be uh, compelling investments into that specific issue. Because like I said, if we're going to ta- tackle uh, drugs and organized crime threats, as well as national security threats, we need to have uh, 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 borders that are secure. It's it's rather common sense. So there needs to be injections uh, of, uh, of funds and, and personnel at all levels of, of uh, government into those law enforcement structures that exist already. Mm. Fiona, from your perspective, what are some of the ways in which the Vancouver police can play a, a, a more expanded role in this integrated approach? Or is that even remotely possible? Absolutely, it's possible. And we already do. We do, as I referenced earlier, we do have a number of uh, members who are out on secondments to different areas, uh, working with the RCMP primarily. Um, and that's something that we have always supported and we would continue to support. And I, I completely agree with Dave with respect to investigative teams. You know, it's one thing to have more of a uniform police presence at the ports. And I know that was one of the recommendations. But in my mind, those investigative teams that can actually dig into um, the uh, ways that organized crime are having an impact on the drug trade in Vancouver and overseas um, and, and this country in general, I think that's where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. But absolutely, it's about resources. And the VPD is very, very, um, uh, has always been very interested in playing a role in that for sure. So that's locally. But what can we do, Calvin, uh, on a transnational basis? Like, are we able to get the kind of cooperation that we require from other law enforcement agencies in other countries? Um, or are they reluctant to, to share with us? I'm going to take a line from uh, Dave and take a step back and probably three more. We're framing the issue as a police issue, and I don't really, you know, I reflect back to 1992 when I got involved in Vancouver Drugs and Marine Operations. When we reflect back there, there was always challenges. But through the evolution of it, uh, and watching it over like 30 years almost, or 25 years, uh, whatever my math is, we can't have a conversation about these threats, and Dave kind of touched on it, but I'll broaden it. I think, you know, the <clears throat> we're missing a couple lenses, I think, in terms of the narrative. One lens, I, I'd suggest, um, is CSIS has made it very clear last year in the very bold statements that you can't look at any of our problems without having a geopolitical lens on it. <clears throat> We so, saw, so meaning whether it's local policing or not, you still have to have a geopolitical lens. You, you, you have yeah. to. And 
we've been talking about it internally for a long time. We have an opportunity to talk publicly because it's now become public. And we saw a foreign state hire gangsters to assassinate people. It's nothing new. It's just something public that we can now talk about. So the geopolitical lens on this problem has to be looked at. The legal lens on the problem, having gone through the painful process of the Colin Commission, where everybody was focusing police, 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 <clears throat> and the whole narrative was controlled by the legal process and legal professionals, we never did a self-reflective analysis in terms of going, what's the legal professional's role and responsibility on it? And in three decades, I haven't met one policeman that wouldn't say the biggest impediment to fixing this is the legal issues and the political will to fix the, uh, that. We can talk about all these policing things. You can throw 20 policemen at me or 30 policemen. I was offered 150 when I was still in the job <clears throat> doing some of the work that Dave's doing. I said 150 more policemen to do what? To be handcuffed and, and sit at their desk not to be able to do anything. So I think you know, this public narrative has to include the legal professions and the politicians because I think without them having it at the table, and Dave talks about nourishing, I would say empowering the police to do what they're supposed to do. And the police, like, the truth is, I can say it, maybe the police can't. But after 33 years and 70 days, like I, for myself, it was like, hey, 10,000 kids on the street dead? Time to have a conversation about it, right? And that's, that's why I'm here today. The police just can't do it. So <clears throat> the biggest impediment to answer your specific question in terms of international cooperation, I think there's tons of willingness to cooperate, but there's really substantive legal impediments through, uh, you know, R versus Stinchcomb, R versus Jordan in terms of two cases to allow us to collaborate and cooperate substantively. The will's there, the relationships are there, but Australia is not going to come here and work with us here on joint operations when it's incongruent their legal system with us. I saw it a hundred times, probably too many. I saw it time, several times where we had great opportunities to neutralize foreign threats but the legal system uh, was an impediment. Kim, I see you eager to jump in here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Cal's so great because he has the, the, the big worldwide overview. I can just talk about some of the specific characters. We were mentioning Damien Ryan. He's a full-patch Hells Angel. I remember, like, mm. covering... Uh, he was charged in August of 2010 with 37 firearms counts. A whole bunch of firearms were found in his Burnaby basement suite, including an automatic weapon behind a teddy bear on a bed. And he goes to Vancouver Provincial Court and his lawyer makes a successful argument that, um, you know, there weren't the correct circumstances for police to enter, even though there had been shots fired in the vicinity of the basement suite and the charges got dropped, right? And he's now accused of being the guy who hired a hitman for an Iranian drug lord who's connected to the regime. So, you know, there's one example of someone locally who hasn't really faced serious consequences for things that he was involved in. Uh, you look at Kamla Wong, who's the right-hand man, according to the people I interviewed, uh, of, say, Chai Lop of Sam Gore, the Sam Gore Network, which is li literally at its peak, uh, making seven to $18 billion a year off the methamphetamine trade. 
Kamala Wong faced charges in 2009 out of a CFSEU investigation. He was on the run for 10 years. Australian Mm -hmm. federal police finally figure out who he is, tip off the RCMP. He's brought back to Canada. There's two pretrial motions. The charges are dropped, Mm -hmm. right? So I had Australians asking me, well, we found this guy. What happened to that case? And I had to, like, when I got back to Canada, I was sending over court rulings to explain to the law enforcement who aided the RCMP why the guy did not face any consequences for these serious charges, right? So, you know, that is a bit of an international reputation that we have is that, you know, we have these serious players. Uh, Some of them started out when they were kids. And you wonder if their trajectory wouldn't have changed if they faced consequences earlier, right? Instead, they just keep moving up in, in the organized crime groups that they're involved in. And they're, you know, allegedly at the highest levels internationally now. Yeah. Dave, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, I can tell you there's not a day that goes by that either myself or, or other investigators working in federal policing or literally across uh, the RCMP, not just in BC but anywhere else, who are, when we're not in contact uh, directly with a, another agency, either domestic or foreign. And I'm talking about, of course, CSIS, uh, Cal made reference to, to, to our colleagues. Um, but the FBI, the DEA, the Department of Homeland Security, the, the UK NCA, the Australian AFP, uh, the partnerships that we have go on and on and on. Those partnerships are deep and they're current and they're active and they're, they're productive. The issue that we have, and I've uh, highlighted this in a conversation this week, is because I, I, for the last several years, I spent a lot of time in national security and advocating for cha- legislative changes in uh, what we've referred to as the intelligence to evidence. But this issue, this gap that we have in Canada that uh, prevents uh, the protection of sensitive information to uh, nourish, again, uh, criminal investigations, is not a problem that is unique to national security. It is also very much pertinent to the fight against high-level organized crime. Mm -hmm. So when we wonder, or if if you ask the question, hey, is there still collaboration possible with international partners? Uh, especially in the Five Eyes Alliance? Of course there is. We do that every single day. These partnerships, these conversations, these exchanges. Right now, uh, uh, two of my teams have two ongoing operations with another agency uh, elsewhere. Uh, and of course, for sensitivity, I can't say where, but we have ongoing investigations currently elsewhere uh, south, and, and, th- and these are two of the many investigations that we undertake every year. However, the transfer of information into investigation is a, le- is a legitimate legislative challenge that we have. You're referring to Stinchcomb, right? Uh, well, there's, yeah. Stinchcomb places legal obligations on us, for on the police, uh, for, um, for disclosure of people that are charged with crimes. So, of course, it's a, it's a legal burden. It's a Supreme Court of Canada decision. <clears throat> we have to comply with it. That's not uh, what I'm necessarily talking about. I'm talking about uh, the current protection of of intelligence, high-grade, high-level intelligence, uh, often developed by Canadian law enforcement, um, that is shared with partners. Partners have a way to use it while protecting its origin, its methodologies, but we don't always have those same Mm. uh, opportunities. Now, national security, there's a little bit of of measures of protection under the Canada Evidence Act, but when it comes to uh, the fight against high-level organized crime, these protections or this, the same problem arises, we can't always action investigatively and in a prosecution the intelligence that either we collect or that we receive from partners. 
But mm. those relationships are there. That sharing of intelligence is there. We know who those high-level brokers and, and uh, uh, high-end criminals are, whether they're Canadians or coming from elsewhere. But there's a legislative issue there of, of intelligence to evidence. And it's one of the, the, mm. the, the many legislative uh, issues that we have. Calvin, just before I get back to you on this topic, Neil, from your perspective, uh, what are you hearing here that you can uh, support and add to? Certainly the legislative challenges are real and there is something that we need to be able to deal with. I think that, uh, however, in order to be able to deal with this situation uh, in the most effective way we can, it does require investment, investment of resources, investment of time and energy, investment of, of political will to be able to actually change legislation. Good afternoon and welcome to Lethal Exports. Joining me today are Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolin, Vancouver Police Deputy Chief Fiona Wilson, RCMP Chief Superintendent for BC, David Telleb, Delta Chief of Police, Neil Dubord, and Calvin Krusty, a consultant experienced in transnational investigations, intelligence, and terrorist operations. Before we start, I want to acknowledge that we are meeting today on the traditional territories of the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam First Nations, whose people have lived on and continue to call these lands home, OCM. Vancouver Sun reporter Kim Bolin has published an extensive series titled Lethal Exports. Exports. Bolin accompanied Australian border officials searching for drugs and interviewed many law enforcement and government officials in different countries. Her investigation found Canadians at the top of transnational smuggling chains basing themselves overseas in places like Vietnam and Taiwan to avoid arrest back here. And their illicit enterprises are having a devastating impact in poor South Pacific countries such as Fiji. Now just before we dig in, I know there are many viewers wanting to ask questions of Kim and our panelists. To do so, please go to slido.com and enter the password conversations. Our Slido master Sean Hall will receive your questions and he'll post them and I'll also call on him to share one or two of the questions uh, verbally with the panelists. Now, while we may not get to all of your specific questions, they will guide me as the conversation unfolds. Kim, first of all, thank you for your stories. They are the type of journalism that we desperately need. They fill an information gap. They're complex and demand time and space to report on appropriately. And I'd also like to acknowledge the role the Lieutenant Governor's BC Journalism Fellowship Award played to be able to help make these stories possible. So Kim, let's not wait any longer. What prompted you to dig into this very important uh, series of stories? Well, I'm a crime reporter here in Vancouver and have been for a long time. And I think as you cover things that are right there in front of you, like we all do as journalists on the ground here, you're constantly seeing links to things beyond your physical location that you want to pursue, you want to get more information. So, you know, because I was able to apply for this fellowship and it could finance uh, travel to six different countries, I was able to kind of follow those threads and try and get to the other end of them and see what role uh, Canadians are playing in the international smuggling chain and uh, what role some of these major criminals are playing in terms of the operations that they're involved in overseas. What's the thing that surprised you the most? 
Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, it's just really a wonderful opportunity to be able to sort of take the knowledge you have from here on the ground and see, you know, what's going on further down the road, right? Mm -hmm. And we don't always get that opportunity as journalists. And all the journalists I know who are beat reporters in this city would like to dig deeper, would like to go further, would like to spend more time. But, you know, because of resources, we don't always have that opportunity. So I think for me, One of the things that was the most surprising was how, at the highest level, all these organizations are working together, even when on the ground here, all the little low-level, mid-level people who are repping their their gang, their team, are shooting at each other, you know, causing a lot of problems here. I'm sure that's not, you know, something new for, you know, police officers who maybe understand that scope, but it was eye-opening to me, and it was a message I really wanted to bring back to my readers and also to some of the younger guys that are directly involved in this. At the highest level, they are not going after each other, and they're making money, and they're using you here on the ground. So that was something that was um, important for me to bring back and to write about. And I would say the other key point was just, you know, how senior some of the Canadians overseas are in terms of these transnational organized crime groups. You know, a fellow like Cam Wong, who grew up in Abbotsford, is right there, you know, near the top uh, with uh, Sam Gorehead, Say Chai Lop. So that was really interesting. And even someone like James Riak, who's been in prison for 10 years in the Philippines, again, a lower mainland guy. I remember going to Vancouver Police News conferences about James Riak back in 2008, 2009. He's in prison for life and still working in the transnational drug trade, right? So that was eye-opening. Kelvin, any of this come as a surprise to you? First of all, I'll compliment Kim in terms of uh, the effort uh, to go out there because the story is like not only from a, a safety perspective and a security perspective, and I have a lot of respect for Kim relative to taking these chances because I think the threats and the networks that she's uh, reporting on uh, are you know beyond just a public safety uh, threat amongst each other, but I think they pose a threat to all Canadians in a host of ways. Two, am I surprised? Sadly, uh, not at all. Uh, we saw some huge changes around 2007 and 2008. And I think, you know, she uh, alluded to a, a time frame there that I think is really important for everybody to reflect on <clears throat> where people like React and other people stepped up. And we saw basically the infrastructure of organized crime here all of a sudden get toppled. And I think, <clears throat> I don't think we've paid enough attention in terms of what that meant. Uh, and when we put it in a global context, and apply geopolitics on it, look at the networks internationally. I think uh, something happened in terms of Vancouver uh, then at that particular time. And um, I think Kim's story has uh, illuminated uh, some of it. I think it's much bigger than, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, beyond the Australia issue. I think it touches Africa, it touches uh, Europe, it touches everywhere on the planet. And Vancouver has <clears throat> basically become a convergence zone uh, for not due to, which I'll say because I'm sitting next to Vancouver City Policing, nothing to do with policing, I don't think, a lot more complex issues. So, Dave, from your perspective, what happened so that where Vancouver did become this convergence zone? Because I think that's one of the other really interesting elements out of Kim's series that you go, holy smokes, we seem to be this transit point for international gangs from around the world coming here and then shipping back out to other locations. 
Yeah, and first of all, I think uh, Kim was right in her point that I think organized crime has understood years ago, stemming back to around the 2007, 2008 and following years, stemming from, of course, the Surrey 6 enforcement that was done and a lot of subsequent uh, violent crimes that were solved by law enforcement, both by the RCMP and Vancouver Police and Partners. But uh, Kim was right in the sense that um, the high-level organized crime has understood that it's not violence is not good for business, all right? and that there needed to be collaboration at the highest level if they're going to make the money, the kind of money that they're aiming to make uh, in Canada and worldwide. So I think she's 100% right when she says uh, at the highest levels, um, what appears to be conflicts uh, at a lower level, on a, at the street level, and, and, and gangs and guns and violence and murders, at a higher level, there's collaboration. Uh, I think she's, she's completely right. Yeah. Uh, to your question, though, about Vancouver or BC turning into uh, a hub for uh, for uh, for organized crime, as uh, as uh, Kim has uncovered and and as uh, law enforcement uh, knows very well, it's tied to profits. Uh, British Columbia has 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 uh, certainly been fortuitous for organized crime, uh, and and it's due to the importation of commodities and chemicals and precursors, fabrication, exportation, and there's a lot of money behind that, as we as we know. So we can take a look at this, especially in looking at your reports, Kim, and go, okay, uh, an awful lot of what you're talking about is, uh, you know, illicit transit uh, uh, trade that's coming through Vancouver, but is it affecting Vancouver? Uh, because, you know, when we think about local policing and generally when we cover it, it's, well, what's happening on the street? Fiona, is are we a little naive to not recognize that uh, this transactional crime also feeds uh, local crime networks. Well, I certainly think we see that every day. We see that on the streets of Vancouver. We see that in our overdose deaths um, that unfortunately continue to rise every year. Um, and uh, I, I certainly know that we have watched the um, uh, the climbing of individuals in Vancouver through organized crime and through uh, the drug trade. You know, I, I remember arresting people like Damien Ryan, who's recently been uh, featured in the news um, when he was just a kid doing relatively, you know, low-level um, dial-a-dope type uh, operations. And I think Kim's point about violence um, at the street level is a really, really important message because I think for many years we've known that at the higher levels there must be a lot of cooperation, but for that to be confirmed and translated in, with respect to what we're seeing at street level in terms of gun violence um, in particular, I think it's a really important message for, for the people who are on the ground. But, you know, to think that we are not um, seeing the impact of uh, transnational organized crime on the streets of Vancouver, I absolutely naive, because we do. So what is it that you can do, though, as a police department to, because you're Vancouver City, uh, but you're now, uh, like, experiencing the consequences of this transnational crime that's coming through British Columbia. What can you do as a city to say, okay, well, we're going to interfere with that. We're actually going to be able to help stop that. Or is that asking too much of the city police department? Does it need a different coordinated uh, effort? So I think one of the biggest things we do uh, is work with our partners throughout the country. 
Um, we have at the VPD, we have over 100 officers who are seconded to different units, including the Federal Serious Organized Crime Unit, where Cal and I actually worked together a number of years ago um, to inset, uh, for example. So we have uh, a number of different secondments. So really, the key to targeting those higher level organizations is coordination across the country by police, for sure. Uh, joining us remotely is Neil DeBoard from uh, the Delta Police, Neil, uh, welcome. Thanks for joining us and, and, and dialing in remotely. When you've heard what you've heard so far, uh, and you take a look at the situation that you deal with in Delta, which is a major port, especially all of those containers that pass through the Delta port, how is that impacting your community and your department? Well, I can begin by saying that, you know, Delta Port itself sits on 300 acres within the city of Delta, and it's only 30 kilometers from downtown Vancouver. So we know that Highway 91, 99, 17 all connect uh, the Delta Port to the lower mainland and to the U.S. border as well. And we also know that it's the gateway to the Pacific with only being three days of sailing time between here and Asia. So it's, it's very strategic in relation to its location. It came to our attention that certainly from uh, the city policing side that we needed to work closer with our partners, needed to work closer with the federal partners, especially to be able to look at uh, the type of contraband that was moving in and out of the Delta port and moving into our city and, and through our city to other parts of the lower mainland. And that's sort of where the interest came. And Kim's article uh, in investigation came at a, a fortuitous time for us to be able to really seize upon sort of the awareness uh, of how much contraband is both imported and exported from the Delta port. You uh, uh, helped uh, in the development of the report that talked about uh, policing in ports in Canada. Um, so the timing of, of this is, is like uh, fortunate because it helps to bring uh, attention to it. What were the main recommendations from that finding? Absolutely. But a little bit of background first, Stuart, that might be helpful. In March 2018, Deputy Chief Lawrence Rankin from the Vancouver Police Department actually worked with the uh, Transportation, Transportation uh, Canadian Modernization Review Panel as part of the CACP, which is the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, and put together some recommendations. And the recommendations at that time were, were threefold. The first one was lack of police presence. The second one was security concerns with port employees. And the third one was some form of proactive policing. So jump forward now to our report, which came out just in late 2023. Peter German and, and retired Deputy Chief uh, Doug Lapard put that report together. And they indicated uh, really four recommendations. The, the first recommendation was since 2001, there's actually been 10 documented reviews of port security, all making recommendations, many of them which have never been actioned. The second one is that there should be some form of uniform presence at the port. The third one was increased coordination of investigated teams and task force. And that's exactly what uh, Deputy Chief Wilson is speaking about, about the coordination of how we work together. And when we toured the port of Seattle, we, we saw a, a very a port that cooperated with the FBI, the DEA, the port uh, security and police, the local police department, it all worked together in a coordinated fashion. And finally, the credentialing of employees entering a secured area. Those were the four major recommendations from the Peter German Douglas Park report that we helped put together here in the city of Delta. Well, let's come back to some of that a little bit later because Kim, I want to go to a point like when I first had conversations 
um, with you and with Harold about this, I was stunned to learn about the ingenuity that these transnational uh, criminal organizations are using, that they would be actually welding sea chests onto the bottom of ships and so on. You went down to Melbourne and mm -hmm. met with officials there. Uh, we have a little bit of tape. Maybe you can explain what we're looking at when uh, when we see this. Smyre, can you roll that tape? There we go. So this is uh, footage that you took, I believe. Yes. So, so what are we seeing here, Kim? We're seeing a member, an officer with the Australian Border Force putting in the submersible uh, it will go up to the container ship, which is at, at dock there in Melbourne, and it goes under. We're now seeing the computer screen. It gets close with, within about a meter of the ship. You're able to see inside these grates that are called sea chests and organized crime, particularly um, South American cartels are putting cocaine and other drugs inside those sea chests, like hundreds of kilograms of drugs. And, you know, the, the people aboard the ship don't even know. They're not even involved, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's almost like, you know, who do you arrest, right? When, if you, so the month before I did this, uh, little trip, uh, they found 150 kilos of cocaine right in the same port with the same device. A few months before that, they found 200, right? So then they have to send their divers down. Um, and, you know, retrieve this, which is very dangerous. One of the things they explained to me is that, you know, because organized crime is doing that, uh, there won't even be buyers for that amount of cocaine until it arrives in Australia. Then they kind of put it out to tender and, you know, get. So, so if it's seized, right, you know, again, there's no one picking it up on the other end, right? So it's very difficult in cases like that to get charges laid. Uh, they also have had circumstances where, um, divers have been flown in from other countries by the transnational crime groups to dive down and get the drugs. And uh, a year and a half ago, someone died doing that. It's a very dangerous um, process, obviously, when you're close to ships and there are motors and engines and everything. So, yeah, they will use every method they can. One of the things that Vancouver is kind of known for is shotgunning, right, where they are sending by mail like a kilogram of methamphetamine or some other product, you know, but you send a hundred of those packages, you get a lot of drugs into a country in a relatively safe way, right, in terms of someone being held accountable at this end. I was surprised to see in your reports how uh, uh, prevalent drug use is in Australia, making it such a perfect market. Yeah, it is, but it's, you know, they're very grateful that they don't have the fentanyl problem yet. They're hoping they don't get the fentanyl problem, but uh, they are uh, the highest user of methamphetamine uh, in the world. Per some capita, of it, right? Per capita, yeah. yeah. Some of it is used, you know, in social settings, but there is there is a real street drug problem and issue there with a lot of related, you know, social harms like domestic violence issues and, uh, you know, some of similar things that to what we have here. But again, without the fentanyl, you don't see what you see in our communities, fortunately mm -hmm. for them. The Waterfront Task Force um, falls under your jurisdiction, doesn't it? Um, what uh, do you have in the way of resources, and what can be done to help bolster uh, those uh, you know, limited resources, as I understand that you have? Yeah, just for clarity, I'm in charge of the federal policing uh, branch in, in uh, BCRCMP, so I overlook six different programs, uh, National Security, Drugs or, or Drugs Organized Crime, and Border Integrity are three of the six programs, uh, and the Waterfront Joint Force Operation falls under Border Integrity. If you allow me just to step, uh, to make one step back, 
that kind of speaks to the importance of what we're talking about. Over the last couple of years, we've had, we've all seen a lot of talks about emerging national security threats across the country and internationally. It's been talked about by our prime minister, a lot of it uh, around foreign interference. At the same time, we've had a lot of conversations about um, the, the pervasive effects of high-end organized criminality across the country, and particularly in BC. We've learned a lot of things from the Cullen Commission. Um, Fiona made references to the high death toll, I think 2,500 deaths uh, this past year alone uh, in BC. Um, we cannot have a serious conversation about these two big topics, who incidentally are my priority, the RCMP's priority federal, uh, in the federal program and, and nationally. We can't have a serious conversations about these two priorities without talking about the integrity of our borders, and particularly in BC, a province that shares the longest land border with three US states and 26,000 kilometers of coastline. Uh, and that includes also our, uh, our, our ports mm -hmm. uh, in Delta, in Surrey, in Vancouver, in Prince Rupert, uh, and so on. So uh, within the Border Integrity Program, to answer your question, um, we have a waterfront JFO uh, structure. It is, in my view, the best operational structure that we, law enforcement, uh, have at our disposal. But like any other structure, any other capacity, it needs to be nourished. It needs to be fed with resources, money, people, and so on. Otherwise, you can have the best solution possible. If you don't nourish it, if you don't feed it, you won't have a capacity. So you need, you need resources. Yes, I do. Yeah, you need more personnel. More and personnel, more money. More personnel, more money. Um, we have, in law enforcement, and Fiona can attest to it, we have very good relationships in BC within the police agencies. Um, I would venture to say maybe even some of the best relationships across Canada within the agencies. Um, but all of our agencies are uh, challenged uh, to different extent with resources and budgets and these sort of things. Uh, so there needs to be uh, compelling investments into that specific issue, because like I said, if we're going to ta tackle uh, drugs and organized crime threats, as well as national security threats, we need to have uh, 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 borders that are secure. It's, it's rather common sense. So there needs to be injections uh, of, uh, of funds and, and personnel at all levels of, of uh, government into those law enforcement structures that exist already. Mm. Fiona, from your perspective, what are some of the ways in which the Vancouver police can play a, a, a more expanded role in this integrated approach? Or is that even remotely possible? Absolutely, it's possible. And we already do. We do, as I referenced earlier, we do have a number of uh, members who are out on secondments to different areas, uh, working with the RCMP primarily. Um, and that's something that we have always supported and we would continue to support. And I, I completely agree with Dave with respect to investigative teams. You know, it's one thing to have more of a uniform police presence at the ports. And I know that was one of the recommendations. But in my mind, those investigative teams that can actually dig into um, the uh, ways that organized crime are having an impact on the drug trade in Vancouver and overseas, um, and, and this country in general, I think that's where we're going to get the most bang for our buck. But absolutely, it's about resources. And the VPD is very, very, um, uh, has always been very interested in playing a role in that for sure. So that's locally. But what can we do, Calvin, uh, on a transnational basis? Like, are we able to get the kind of cooperation that we require from other law enforcement agencies in other countries? Um, or are they reluctant to, to share with us? I'm going to take a line from uh, Dave and take a step back 
and probably three more. We're framing the issue as a police issue, and I don't really, you know, I, I reflect back to 1992 when I got involved in Vancouver Drugs and Marine Operations. And when we reflect back there, <clears throat> there was always challenges. But through the evolution of it, uh, and watching it over like 30 years almost, or 25 years, uh, whatever my math is, we can't have a conversation about these threats, and Dave kind of touched on it, but I'll broaden it. I think, that, you know, the <clears throat> we're missing a couple lenses, I think, in terms of the narrative. One lens, I, I'd suggest, um, is CSIS has made it very clear last year in a very bold statement that you can't look at any of our problems without having a geopolitical lens on it. <clears throat> We so, saw, so meaning whether it's local policing or not, you still have to have a geopolitical lens. You, you, you have yeah. to, and we've been talking about it internally for a long time. We have an opportunity to talk publicly because it's now become public. And we saw a foreign state hire gangsters to assassinate people. It's nothing new. It's just something public that we can now talk about. So the geopolitical lens on this problem has to be looked at. The legal lens on the problem, having gone through the painful process of the calling commission, where everybody was focusing police, 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 <clears throat> and the whole narrative was controlled by the legal process and legal professionals, we never did a self-reflective analysis in terms of going, what's the legal professional's role and responsibility on it? And in three decades, I haven't met one policeman that wouldn't say the biggest impediment to fixing this is the legal issues and the political will to fix the, uh, that. We can talk about all these policing things, and you can throw 20 policemen at me or 30 policemen. I was offered 150 when I was still in the job <clears throat> doing some of the work that Dave's doing. I said 150 more policemen to do what? To be handcuffed and, and sit at their desk not to be able to do anything. So I think you know this public narrative has to include the legal professions and the politicians because I think without them having it at the table, and Dave talks about nourishing I would say empowering the police to do what they're supposed to do. And the police, like, the truth is, I can say it, maybe the police can't. But after 33 years and 70 days, like I, for myself, it was like, hey, 10,000 kids on the street dead? Time to have a conversation about it, right? That's, that's why I'm here today. The police just can't do it. So <clears throat> the biggest impediment to answer your specific question in terms of international cooperation I think there's tons of willingness to cooperate, but there's really substantive legal impediments through, uh, you know, R versus Stinchcomb, R versus Jordan in terms of two cases, to allow us to collaborate and cooperate substantively. The will's there, the relationships are there, but Australia's not going to come here and work with us here on joint operations when it's incongruent their legal system with us. I saw it a hundred times, probably too many. I saw it time, several times where we had great opportunities to neutralize foreign threats, but the legal system uh, was an impediment. Kim, I see you eager to jump in here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, Cal's so great because he has the, the, the big worldwide overview. I can just talk about some of the specific characters. We were mentioning Damien Ryan. He's a full-patch Hells Angel. I remember like covering, uh, he was charged in August of 2010 with 37 firearms counts. A whole bunch of firearms were found in his Burnaby basement suite, including an automatic weapon behind a teddy bear on a bed. 
and he goes to Vancouver Provincial Court and his lawyer makes a successful argument that, um, you know, there weren't the correct circumstances for police to enter, even though there had been shots fired in the vicinity of the basement suite, and the charges got dropped, right? And he's now accused of being the guy who hired a hitman for an Iranian drug lord who's connected to the regime. So, you know, there's one example of someone locally who hasn't really faced serious consequences for things that he was involved in. Uh, you look at Kam Le Wong, who's the right-hand man, according to the people I interviewed, uh, of, say, Chai Lop of Sam Gore, the Sam Gore Network, which is li- literally at its peak, uh, making 7 to $18 billion a year off the methamphetamine trade. Kam Le Wong faced charges in 2009 out of a CFSEU investigation. He was on the run for 10 years. Australian federal police finally figure out who he is, tip off the RCMP. He's brought back to Canada. There's two pretrial motions. The charges are dropped, Hmm. right? So I had Australians asking me, well, we found this guy. What happened to that case? And I had to like, when I got back to Canada, I was sending over court rulings to explain to the law enforcement who aided the RCMP why the guy did not face any consequences for these serious charges, right? So, you know, that is a bit of an international reputation that we have is that, you know, we have these serious players. Uh, Some of them started out when they were kids. And you wonder if their trajectory wouldn't have changed if they faced consequences earlier, right? Instead, they just keep moving up in, in the organized crime groups that they're involved in. And they're, you know, allegedly at the highest levels internationally now. Yeah. Dave, you had something you wanted to add? Yeah, I can tell you there's not a day that goes by that either myself or, or other investigators working in federal policing or literally across uh, the RCMP, not just in BC but anywhere else, who are, when we're not in contact uh, directly with a, another agency, either domestic or foreign. And I'm talking about, of course, CSIS, uh, Cal made reference to, to, to our colleagues, um, but the FBI, the DEA, the Department of Homeland Security, the, the UK NCA, the Australian AFP, uh, the partnerships that we have go on and on and on. Those partnerships are deep and they're current and they're active and they're, they're productive. The issue that we have, and I've uh, highlighted this in a conversation this week, is because I, I, for the last several years, I spent a lot of time in national security and advocating for cha- legislative changes in uh, what we've referred to as the intelligence to evidence. But this issue, this gap that we have in Canada that uh, prevents uh, the protection of sensitive information to uh, nourish, again, uh, criminal investigations, is not a problem that is unique to national security. It is also very much pertinent to the fight against high-level organized crime. Mm -hmm. So when we wonder, or if if you ask the question, hey, is there still collaboration possible with international partners? Uh, especially in the Five Eyes Alliance? Of course there is. We do that every single day. These partnerships, these conversations, these exchanges. Right now, uh, uh, two of my teams have two ongoing operations with another agency uh, elsewhere. Uh, and of course, for sensitivity, I can't say where, but we have ongoing investigations currently elsewhere uh, south, and, and, th- and these are two of the many investigations that we undertake every year. However, the transfer of information into investigation is a, is a legitimate legislative challenge that we have. You're referring to Stinchcomb, right? Uh, well, there's, yeah. Stinchcomb places legal obligations on us, for on the police, uh, for, um, for disclosure of people that are charged with crimes. 
so of course it's a it's a legal burden. It's a Supreme Court of Canada decision. <clears throat> we have to comply with it. That's not uh, what I'm necessarily talking about. I'm talking about uh, the current protection of of intelligence, high grade, high level intelligence, uh, often developed by Canadian law enforcement, um, that is shared with partners. Partners have a way to use it while protecting its origin, its methodologies, but we don't always have those same. Mm. Uh, opportunities. Now, national security, there's a little bit of, of uh, measures of protection under the Canada Evidence Act, but when it comes to uh, the fight against high-level organized crime, these protections, or this, the same problem arises, we can't always action investigatively and in a prosecution the intelligence that either we collect or that we receive from partners. But mm. those relationships are there, that sharing of intelligence is there. We know who those high-level brokers and, and uh, uh, high-end criminals are, whether they're Canadians or coming from elsewhere. But there's a legislative issue there of, of intelligence to evidence. And it's one of the, 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 the many legislative uh, issues that we have. Calvin, just before I get back to you on this topic, Neil, from your perspective, uh, what are you hearing here that you can uh, support and add to? Certainly the legislative challenges are real and there is something that we need to be able to deal with. I think that, uh, however, in order to be able to deal with this situation uh, in the most effective way we can, it does require investment, investment of resources, investments of time and energy, investment of, of political will to be able to actually change legislation, to be able to actually move forward the necessary investment for resources that might be necessary. You know, just to talk a little bit about resources, it, it always comes down to money. And uh, one of the things that came forward in the report that uh, Peter German and Doug Lepard did that was re really initiated by Mayor George Harvey was the, a sort of a funding model as well. And it's important for us to consider that whenever we we want more investment into whether it be policing or intelligence or, or into legislative reform, that we look at ways to be able to fund those models. And, and one idea that came forward was uh, not to go to the taxpayers, but to actually look at a small service charge on every container. There's approximately 3 million containers or what they call TEUs, 20-foot uh, equivalent units uh, that come into the Delta port every year. A small uh, $10 surcharge, safety surcharge, would certainly provide some investment that would allow us to be able to fund resources that might be necessary to be able to staff an integrated team that would begin to chip away at the problem. You've got to begin locally and then move nationally. I always say from island to nation. And so then how would that help you in Delta? And then Fiona, by extension, how would it help you in Vancouver if you start, if we started to be able to amass those kinds of financial resources that could bolster what, what you're able to provide? I think one model very well within the, the Lower Mainland is the CFSU model, so the Combined Forces Enforcement Unit, which uh, is currently uh, working to be able to manage gangs within the Lower Mainland. That's an integrated unit that's funded uh, and fully staffed that allows people to be able to share information, to be able to work together and to actually be able to hopefully uh, target the right criminals, the right organized crime criminals to be able to move it forward. So it would assist, I, I think, local police because we would be part of those integrated teams, not unlike we would see for CFSU. Fiona. I agree uh, with Neil that CFSU is a great model. I was actually, I filled a deputy chief role there a number of years ago. And 
Um, the nice thing about the Combined Forces Special Enforcement Unit is that it focuses on those individuals and groups who pose the greatest risk to the people in the province. So it's not just one particular city or one particular area, but it's the entire province of British Columbia. And um, we have, from VPD, we have a number of people who are seconded there, um, and they are able to really target their enforcement uh, in specific areas, whether it has to do with financial crime, whether it has to do with um, drugs, guns, whatever the case may be. Um, and so I really, I agree with that. I think it's a, a good model. Galvin, sorry to keep you waiting there. I know that you were, oh, no, well, no, no. you know. I, I can't remember what I was <clears throat> going to say, but CFSU respectfully has been around for 20, 30 years. They had Clue, they called a couple different names. But the model that's required is an international model. We need teams in Los Angeles. We need teams at the different convergence zones. If you look at, <clears throat> if you look at the trains and transportation systems and globally look at it, you probably need a team in uh, Chicago. The ports go directly from Prince Rupert right to Chicago. It's advertised all over the websites. So if you're not <clears throat> looking at it from a global perspective, we've looked at it you know, from the media <clears throat> driving the public safety uh, issues from a municipal level, from a lower mainland level <clears throat> for X number of years. The solution hasn't been found <clears throat> in terms of collaboration and cooperation. And like everybody on the panel, I agree. Cooperation, collaboration, 10 out of 10. When you look at it at a provincial level, <clears throat> they've been doing it exceptionally at the provincial level. Where it needs to happen is at the international level. And <laughs> there's an underlying challenge there you know, when, because I, that's where I used to sit. And that legal impediment um, really is a problem. And it's, it's really hard to communicate. We were, we were working cases with Chapo Guzman on the border with, you know, Department of Justice, because he had a cell sitting up here. We went down to the Mexican-U.S. border, met with all the parties and that. For three days with the lead prosecutors on the Chapo uh, Guzman case from New York, with the top prosecutors from here in Ottawa, three days of discussions just about the legal impediments. It wasn't about, hey, can we work together? Hey, uh, do you have the resources? Hey, can you do this? But it was, how do we get through these legal impediments in terms of a real case to be able to share our information with their information and them most importantly share our information? Because if you look at the Canada Evidence Act, whatever it is, section 35 or whatever, the only one that can protect international information sharing is a judge. Well, at the beginning of an investigation, there's no judge sitting there. We're lucky if we get a prosecutor sitting in the case in Canada. Try to get a judge to say, hey, we're gonna protect that. Prosecutors in the US, they won't, they won't go, hey, we're gonna trust you, know, you, Inspector Krusty, or whoever it is. When they're sitting there spending millions, and it's a national security issue, and I hear us talking crime versus national security. You go to the US, crime is national security. You go to Australia, crime is national security. You go to the UK, crime is national security. And we need to kind of, I think, get away from, you know, 1970 thinking in terms of what crime is these days and what this conversation is about. It's actually a national security threat. And the evidence was one week ago where Iran hired a you know, well-known gangster that Fiona used to investigate on the streets and going, hey, states are using our people here to, for national security purposes, not for gang activity. 
Well, that leads, uh, Sean, uh, to our top question here. I think it's a perfect segue. Yeah, if you can uh, share that with us. Yeah, thanks, To uh, The question is, uh, what is the connection between transnational organized crime and national security threats from state-sponsored actors in Canada? Well, I can answer that. Um, the very vast uh, majority of the chemical precursors that are imported into Canada that serve the fabrication and production of meth and fentanyl uh, originate from China. Um, and uh, to Cal's point a second ago, as another example, um, you had a foreign state not long ago that tried to hire a very notorious gangster who's now luckily in jail to try to kill somebody uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a third country, in a, in a partner country. And those examples, um, I can keep uh, going. Um, there's currently ongoing investigations uh, in the RCMP at the federal level and uh, in other uh, branches of the RCMP that also are currently uh, currently highlight uh, the um, the implications of foreign states into criminality uh, of all kinds, violent and as far as commodity trading as well and importation of commodities into Canada. Um, there, there's several. Um. So we have a clip right now from, uh, we pronounce her name Kalasi, right? Kalasi. Kalasi, out of Fiji, where she's uh, advocating for a drug-free Fiji. But she is looking at uh, our leaky uh, export system saying, help. Um, Samaya, can you run the clip that we've called Chaos? We are in chaos. We don't have the facility to cater for this substance abuses, the family break breakdown, the increasing number of those incarceration, those in mental health, a lot of suicide that goes with it. So many social issues impacted by this. She goes on to say, if we can do something to stop this, um, then please help. Because we talk about our limited resources here. She said they have two people on the waterfront for a country that is islands. Uh, it's even more porous than ours. So what responsibility, and I'm going to come back to you, Neil, because I know this is uh, really big to, as far as you're concerned, what responsibility do we have to help uh, ensure that we cut down on the flow of supply that comes through uh, British Columbia and Canada? Uh, thank you. I, I think what we've learned is that the export of what uh, Canadians export in relation to contraband is as significant as what we import as well. So that was something certainly that that I learned as a result of this particular report and it was helpful in being able to frame uh, exactly what Cal is talking about. It is, it is larger than just a municipal issue, a provincial issue, rather even a national issue. It's an international issue. However, when we start to look at a problem and how we can actually attack a problem and hopefully solve some of the issues that are being seen on the downtown east side that Fiona talked about or potentially what they're seeing in Fiji, uh, the idea is that we have to be able to at least do what we can to be able to restrict the amount of contraband that's either coming in or going out from our borders. And I don't think at this particular time we've done an exceptional job of being able to do that. Is there a larger picture? Absolutely. Do we need to concentrate on the larger picture? Absolutely. I guess uh, certainly within my circle of influence, uh, you know, it's around what we do here provincially and what we do certainly within the city of Delta and how we begin to attack the problem. And I guess the way to eat an elephant is the first bite of the time. 
So Kim, in your stories, I mean, you talked about the fact that Canada internationally is recognized as a uh, trusted trading partner. And as such, actually the level of scrutiny of materials that move through Vancouver or Prince George um, is lower in those countries because they trust that we're actually maybe doing something to, to stop the outflow. Um, that's quite surprising that they, you know, and, and what's happening to our reputation as a result of especially what you're finding? Well, I think that our, the international partners that work with police here, they have great respect for law enforcement in Canada. They, they talk about how much they coordinate, uh, exchange intelligence. So I, I don't think they're, you know, all of a sudden, oh, well, Canada is, you know, full of, um, you know, Sinaloa cartel people, though there are some here, right? But they talk about the increasing sophistication of organized crime, uh, which has Canadians, you know, at some of the top levels, but there are others as well. And these guys will just shift. Now, we've seen over the last year a lot of particularly methamphetamine trends shipped through Port of Vancouver to Australia, New Zealand. You know, there have now been all these seizures. They'll probably look somewhere else, right? But that doesn't mean our responsibility should stop because our people are still directly involved. So they're not, uh, they understand that these uh, transshipment routes change all the time, depending on, you know, where law enforcement is most active. Having said that, we haven't really seen any charges at our end yet for some of these major shipments. And that might be a deterrent for those involved uh, with using Port of Vancouver. So you also touched down in your report that uh, Mexican cartels go, oh, good, we can ship through Vancouver or Prince Rupert um, because, well, uh, it's <clears throat> leaky. Um, we can get it in, we can get it out. Uh, does that in some ways become kind of a victimless crime here and in in British Columbia because we're going, well, it's just passing through, it's just transiting through? Or do, or do we have a greater responsibility in stopping that even though we're only a transit point? Well, listen, Canada is a great citizen of the world. We're part of a variety of alliances from NATO to the Five Eyes and, and so on. We have an obligation to stop uh, the flow uh, that, uh, of, of commodities fabricated here that are killing people elsewhere. Mm -hmm. that, that, I think anybody will agree with that. We have a moral and ethical obligation to do that. Um, that, that, that it, we, at, and I think Kim said it best uh, recently, you know, those drug dealers, those drug promoters and exporters are causing havoc and causing misery in other countries. And that's just bluntly unacceptable. So when it comes to the production, uh, because we talk about the, the precursor uh, chemicals and substances coming in, as far as drug manufacturing in Vancouver, um, from your perspective, Fiona, what's this, uh, the scale of the pro problem or issue here and how can we combat it? So it's interesting because up until, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, we were always more concerned with importation in British Columbia and in Canada. And Cal and I, certainly the file that we worked on together was a heroin importation uh, file where the drugs were coming into Canada. Um, what we've seen recently, particularly with fentanyl production, is that uh, we've taken down a couple of super labs uh, over the last few years. And... 
you know, you talk about our international responsibility. We see what happens in communities where fentanyl is introduced in large quantities. We believe we produce more fentanyl now in British Columbia than there is a need for. And that excess uh, production is certainly um, ripe for shipping overseas. Now, we hear that places like Australia don't have uh, a prevalent problem with fentanyl, but we have a real responsibility to make sure that we're doing everything we can to prevent that from happening. Oh. Uh, a couple things, and I say it in a, uh, <clears throat> the most collegial, uh, respectful. Uh, yes. <laughs> uh, Neil brought up uh, a point in terms of... Uh, you know, how do you eat an elephant in one bite at a time? And uh, I would just, you know, using metaphors in the conversation here, we're one of the only countries in the five eyes and in, with many other countries that don't have a strategy. And so I, I look at, you know, when I used to be inside and I look outside as a public going, hey, we have the C Canadian chiefs of police. We have all these structures in terms of government. Why are we the only one of the only structures that don't have a national strategy uh, on this. So I say <clears throat> to all those people on the chiefs of police boards and chief associations, uh, no plan, plan to fail. And it's something that we always try to push at a national level. We can never do it. But there are bodies like the you know Canadian chiefs of police board to go, hey, why don't we have it? And it, because Right now, in fairness to police, without that happening, this conversation keeps talking about one thing. Police, police, police. The problem is not the police. The problem is legal. The problem is our you know, other federal partners. I work more with our you know, U.S. You know, military, U.S. intelligence, U.S. And up here in Canada, it's the police on an island by themselves trying to do it. So... I think, hey, no plan, plan to fail. And uh, I think somebody needs to take, you know, <clears throat> take the bull by the horn, so to speak, and have that conversation and say, why isn't there a national strategy that is inclusive of all policing agencies, C uh, CSIS, DND, DFO, uh, everybody, and that's how other countries do it. And I don't think we're going to be successful until we take it on that seriously. Neil, you were the president of the... Police Chiefs Association, your response to Calvin? A couple different things on that. I wanted to bring some data back to sort of what Kim was talking about as well. So let's just talk about the last year. So Kim, I think some of your research revealed that there were eight tons of meth seized by CBSA last year, which is four times the amount in the last four years. So in December of 22, CBSA seized 2,500 kilos of opium. January 2023, CBSA seized 2,907 kilos of methamphetamine. May 2023, they seized another 325 meth, uh, kilos of methamphetamine. And May 2023, late that month, they seized another 2,898 kilos of methamphetamine. So the fact is, is that we are porous and we need to do something here locally. Do we need to do something nationally as well? Absolutely. But it starts, you know, we have a moral and ethical ob obligation to be able to do something here as well within our reach and what we can potentially do. Is there a larger picture? Absolutely. But that will be much more complicated and we have to take this on at several different angles. One of the angles is locally. So, Sean, can you read us the question from Susan Hill? I can. It is, uh, why were the port police eliminated in the 1990s? Uh, was it not foreseeable 
that this would open up the ports for organized crime. Interesting question, because I think that this is like where we're going to focus the next part of our conversation. What role the port police can can play? Why was it downsized uh, back in the 1990s? And how important is it that we're able to to bring them an expanded uh, presence into the fold so long as it's part of an overall coordinated strategy? Kim, what did you find when you started looking at what the impact of a lack of port police is here in British Columbia? Well, I first did a series on this uh, in 2015, so that's almost 10 years ago, a five-part series that was mentioned in the report that Peter German recently did. And it showed just how many people with organized crime links work as longshore workers at the Port of Vancouver. And I documented, you know, probably... Uh, well, at least uh, three dozen who had, you know, people who were in the Hells Angels, were in other criminal organizations, or had international drug smuggling convictions, and they all worked there. Uh, and there was no port police then. I think, as Peter German noted in his report, he had a hard time tracking down why the port police was originally eliminated in 1997, right? It was kind of part of... Uh, different structuring of how the facilities operated at the port. Uh, but, you know, there was a lot of criticism of it for years afterwards, and that continued when I did my 2015 series and, you know, just showed how the majority of workers there have no security clearance requirement, even if they're in the Hells Angels, uh, that a few workers do have to go through security clearance, uh, and that means they can go to certain parts of the port that are separated by a painted line. So in reality, everyone kind of moved around the port, which is what I found at the time. And there was a lot of issues uh, raised related to, you know, how um, the whole uh, employment structure on the ports really is. Because, you know, the union, the International Longshore and Warehouse Workers Union provides the, the people that work. And uh, every year they have a lottery. It's very controversial to get new members. Each person in the union uh, gets a, a form to fill out. There's been lots of talk. Some of the forms are sold. Uh, but, you know, if someone's in the Hells Angels, they give their form to another Hells Angels. And then there's a draw that's not done publicly. And the new members come on board. And it's amazing how many Hells Angels are lucky enough to win that draw every year. Um, so given that the Hells Angels are involved in these transnational uh, relationships that, you know, I wrote about on my trip that people are talking about here, it's shocking to me that they're able to work at the Port of Vancouver with very little scrutiny of that. So I'm um, not really answering your question. I don't know why the Port Police were eliminated, but I know there's been a lot of criticism of it ever since uh, and that the replacement model, you know, we, we've sort of documented is based at the airport. as not as active as it once was, but maybe Dave can talk about yeah, that. Yeah, so, so, so I can't confirm why. I don't know why the Ports Police, I wasn't Nobody seems in fact, to know. In fact, yeah. Yeah. In fact everybody was uh, fairly young <laughs> yeah. in 1997, except for Cal. Um, I think he was retired when, when it happened. Uh, joking aside, uh, so first of all, Kim's right with respect to the security issues, the security clearance issues at the ports. Uh, without getting into great details, we currently have persons of interest to investigations that are currently working at the ports that have long criminal history, and they're working and accessing ports. So uh, Transport Canada, port authorities need to, again, make some changes. 
because it's not a law enforcement, it's not the VPD or the RCMP that has the authority to say you need a clearance to work here. So there's, uh, again, sort of uh, regulatory legislative changes that need to be made uh, here to, to Kim's point. Um, with respect to the, the port policing model, Again, it has to be looked at in the concept of border integrity at large. I mentioned the longest land border, again, between one province and three U.S. states, as well as the unique position that the B.C. is in with being a coastal province and, again, thousands of kilometers of coastline. The ports are included in that conversation, mm-hmm. right, in that effort of hardening our borders, whether they are land, maritime, or port of entries, including the airport. So if we were to... Um, consider what the ports specifically need. Uh, My view, my humble perspective is it needs a uniform presence, it needs a robust intelligence capacity, and it needs a robust uh, investigative capacity. So I don't know if the ports police met those uh, criteria or or did that back in the day. This is what's needed uh, today. Again, I go back, we have a waterfront JFO, we have CFSU capacities, we have great partnerships and, and very skilled investigators in our, in our, with our municipal partners. I'm, an ad, I'm, a, I'm a strong, uh, because I've worked most of my service in integrated environments with the VPD and the New West and Abbeys and all the, these, these agencies, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of integration, interoperability, collaboration, cooperation uh, at the local level. I think uh, Chief DuBort said it, act locally. This is what we can do locally. Engage all business lines of all law enforcement agencies that have a stake in this, and we need investments at all levels of government. That's what's needed if you're going to harden the ports. Can I just give an example? I mean, because I know one of the problems I have with all of this as a journalist is trying to convey to the general public why it's important. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, drugs are going out of Canada. Who cares, right? You know, the whole issue of national security. A lot of people don't think about it on a daily basis. But just to give a, a, an example, an outrageous example, you know, I was recently covering the sentencing hearing of Hells Angel Larry Amaro, convicted of two conspiracies to commit murder for um, a case that did involve an actual murder at 